Have you ever heard of the phrase toxic masculinity? <laughs> That's the idea that men in culture are the oppressors, they're the villains, and they're what's wrong with our society. Well, today on the program, we're going to talk about the truth about manhood and masculinity, what real authentic masculinity looks like, and how we can reclaim manhood. And my guest today is going to be Professor Nancy Piercy, the best-selling author and speaker. So stick around. Well, hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to Activist Radio, The Mark Harrington Show. And you can find out more about the uh, program by going to markharrington.org. I am the uh, president and founder of Created Equal, and we're an organization that takes the truth about abortion to college campuses all across America. And you can pick up our podcast on all the popular podcasting platforms. Well, today you're going to want to you want to stay close by as we're going to be having a great interview with uh, Professor Nancy Piercy. And and Nancy uh, has become a friend over the years because I got to know her uh, because of my son. My son, Luke Harrington, went to Rivendell Sanctuary way back. It's probably been 10 years or more. <laughs> and that's uh, a, a school in Bloomington, Minnesota. And uh, Nancy was teaching there. And she was on the um, on the staff there at Rivendell. And she's written several books. She's a very well-known author. I think a lot of our listeners and viewers will know her. And she's also a speaker. She's written this book here, which we're going to be talking about today, which is The Toxic War on Masculinity. And she's written other books as well. Love Thy Body, which is a staple here at Created Equal. Uh, We use this in our internship. We went through it entirely one summer and use it during our Worldview Wednesdays, we call them. Uh, Another great book. Uh, Nancy, thanks for being on the program. It's great to see you, and I appreciate you coming on. I got to finish the book over the weekend. Uh, It's a great read, uh, and I wanted to to get people aware of it. Um, Let's just go straight to, first of all, I I love the play on words, (laughs) right? The, The toxic war on masculinity. And, you know, this morning I was sharing in our devotions, and I asked our staff and volunteers and, and interns if they knew what toxic masculinity meant. Of course, that's a, a, a phrase that's been coined by the left. Uh, and they really were like, we're sure, <laughs> you know, so I guess we should start out and just explain what what does what is toxic masculinity, at least uh, as it's defined by the dominant culture. Yes. You know, I wrote the book partly because I kept seeing that phrase everywhere and I, what it means, of course, is that people think that masculinity is, is inherently domineering, entitlement, control, and so on. Uh, there was an article that caught my eye in the Washington Post that said, mm-hmm. it was, the title was, Why Can't We Hate Men? And I thought, what? You know, a respected publication like that? A Huffington Post editor tweeted the hashtag, kill all men. You can buy T-shirts that say, so many men, so little ammunition. There are books out with titles like, I hate men, no good men, and are men necessary? So this is the hostility that you see today too much of culture against masculinity itself. A a study found that 
46% of American men, almost half, agree with the statement. These days, it seems like society punishes men just for being men. Mm-hmm. So that's the, that's the problem I wanted to address in the book. You know, how, what is happening in our culture that men feel so demeaned and so demoralized? There's a psychiatrist who writes for the Wall Street Journal, and she said, young men coming into my practice now are increasingly demoralized and feeling defeated already just because they feel as though the culture is very hostile to masculinity. Mm-hmm. So that was the problem I was addressing primarily in the book. Where does this come from? And of course, it comes primarily from the secular world, that the secular definition of masculinity has departed from, has fallen away from, you know, biblical definitions of masculinity. Yeah, and that's what I really wanted to to, to address here this morning. Where did it come from? Where where how do we get here? You know, as we go on college campuses, it, I hear a lot of it coming my way. Because I, I fit the stereotype perfectly, right? <laughs> I'm a white Christian male, cisgendered male. <laughs> so I fit the ter- stereotype. How did we get to this place that a person like myself would be considered a, a bully, you know, an abuser, uh, an oppressor? And that's how they make us out to be. How did we get here? Well, in, in my book, Toxic War and Masculinity, I do go through several stages, Um so I'm going to focus on just one of those stages. The rise of Darwinian evolution had a huge impact mm-hmm. in secularizing the definition of masculinity. Darwinian thinkers said uh, the men who came out on top in the struggle for survival would by necessity be those who were ruthless, rugged, predatory, barbarian, savage, and so on. And so the... Darwinist worldview seemed to say, you know, don't live up to the image of God in you, live down to the animal nature in you, you know, the, the beast within, as they used to say. By the way, this was about the time that the Tarzan books became popular, you know, a man raised by the apes. And so he had still had that inner wildness. And at the end of the book, he turns to Jane. He's learned European languages, but he turns to Jane and says, I'm still a wild beast at heart. So that would be a, a good example of how the secular world has demeaned, devalued the, the concept of masculinity and told men, well, you know, you don't have to live up to God's image. You don't have to live up to a biblical understanding of masculinity. You need to get in touch with your inner beast, you know, your inner animal. So mm-hmm. I go through several more examples, but I thought that was one of the most important stages and why the secular world came to see men as, you know, power-hungry, <laughs> entitled, domineering, tyrannical patriarchs, which is the language you hear today. And, and so we need, we need to be aware of what the secular worldview is and where it came from so that we can counter it effectively. My guest today on the program is Professor Nancy Piercy, and you can go to her website at nancypiercy.com. And this book has just been released to the public. You can go to amazon.com to pick it up, The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. And I want to get to that part right here soon. Uh, You make so many great points in the book. Uh, One is about the Industrial Revolution, or uh, yeah, that I, I hadn't really given it a whole lot of thought. And that is where men were then, uh, you know, they left the home and they started working outside the house. 
and that led to uh, some, you know, separation there uh, from the home and working with the family. I think that was a great point. You also mentioned real men versus, I think it was good men, right? <laughs> right, right. So that was a sociological study that was done, which is fascinating. I'll give you the background to this. So I taught my manuscript, my you know, my book when it was in manuscript form uh, to my students, and I had a lot of reading groups, and they would tell their friends and family about the book. Um, and the first question, invariably, the first question was, whose side is she on? With mm-hmm. that tone, you know, whose side is she on? You know, the assumption yeah. I had to either be, you know, a male bashing feminist or an angry reactionary. And so that's why I put that study right at the front of the book, which which showed we don't have to be either either one. Um, so the sociologist is invited to speak all around the world. And he came up with this clever experiment. He asked young men, what does it mean to be a good man? Mm-hmm. And all around yeah. the world, they have no problem answering that. They say right. duty, honor, integrity, do the right thing. Be be a provider, be a protector, be generous, stand up for the little guy, sort of like that one. But mm-hmm. he would ask them, well, where'd you learn that? And they say, well, it's just in the air we breathe. Or if they mm-hmm. were in a Western country, they would say, it's part of our Judeo-Christian heritage. Mm-hmm. And then he would ask a follow-up question. He'd say, well, what does it mean if I say to you, man up, be a real man? The young men would say, oh, no, that's completely different. That means be tough, be strong, win at all costs, suck it up, be be competitive, get rich, get laid. I'm using their language. Mm, <laughs> of course. And so, and of course, those are the traits most of us think of as more toxic. Certainly, if they're disconnected from a moral vision of the good man, they can slide into toxic traits. And so it gives us a different strategy for dealing with these issues. Most men don't respond well to being called toxic. (laughs) Who would? But what we can do is we can be confident. Men are made in God's image, and they do have an inherent knowledge and innate understanding of what it means to be good. Romans 2, right? We all have a conscience. And so instead of calling men toxic and denigrating them and denouncing them, what we really should be doing is tapping into their innate sense of what it means to be a good man. And that gives us a much more positive strategy for addressing these issues. And, and Nancy, why would you, uh, why do you think it is that our, our culture is attacking masculinity? What, what is, there, there's a strategy here, right? To put men down. I mean, we look at our TV shows, uh, we look at modern media, we look at all the, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, men are always put in positions where they're they're idiots. You know, they're stupid buffoons. There's a strategy behind this. What is it? Well, especially fathers. You know, the fathers are the right. ones who, you know, the, the doofus dad, the dimwit dad is particularly the one who's mocked and ridiculed in the media. And, you know, you mentioned the Industrial Revolution. So well, yeah. let's go back to that. Before the Industrial Revolution, Men worked with their families, their wives and children all day long on the family farm, the family industry, the family business. And so the ethos, the cultural expectation on men was very much a caretaking ethos. You know, mm-hmm. you, you're working with your kids. You have to be gentle and patient. And, and even the concept of authority was very different back then. It meant whoever had 
the responsibility for the common good. And their favorite word at that time was disinterested. The person in authority was not supposed to pursue his own interest. He was supposed to look out for the common good of the marriage, the family, the school, the church, whatever. That's what masculinity was about. It all changed, as you noted, with the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution takes work out of the home, and that means, of course, men had to follow their work out of the home. And instead of working with their families all day, people they love and have a moral bond with, they're working in competition as an individual with other men. And this is actually when you see the language start to change. People started to protest that men were becoming egocentric, self-interested, greedy, acquisitive, you know, look out for number one, get ahead at all costs. You see the language of the day saying we're losing that caretaking ethos, that biblical ethos that had been much more common in the Industrial Revolution, before uh, in the colonial age, before the Industrial Revolution. Um, and this is also when fathers began to be mocked because they weren't mm-hmm. home all day as they had been. And so they no longer were really fully integrated into the family as much. They didn't know what was going on with their children. They weren't aware of the family dynamics. And so you also see already, already in the 19th century, language saying, you know, our fathers have become disconnected uh, and irrelevant and even incompetent. They're incompetent as parents because they're just not there enough to, to be deeply connected with their children. And so, of course, in the book, I can't just leave it there. I have to give some practical solutions. So I do have a whole chapter on can we flex the workplace at all today to allow fathers to be more connected to their children? And the pandemic changed things. One study found that 65% of fathers don't want to go back full time after the pandemic is over. Interesting. Yeah. The New York Times had a wonderful article on it. And the title was something like, during the pandemic, fathers got closer to their children and they don't want to lose that. So I have a whole chapter with examples of how fathers might be able to flex the work, their work a little bit more. And we're in a perfect time to do that because people have, even CEOs, I, I quote several CEOs who say, hey, we were not open to home-based work, you know, telecommuting, flexible hours, um, you know, work from home two days a week. We were not open to that because we thought people would slough off, right? Our productivity would go down. They said during the pandemic, our, our productivity did not go down. All of our fears were completely exploded. And so even CEOs, even the corporations are saying, hey, you give time, you give men time to be better fathers, they end up being better workers as well. My guest today on the program is Professor Nancy Piercy. And friends, I recommend this book highly. Um, she is a uh, professor at Houston Christian University. And I met uh, Nancy uh, about a decade ago at Riverdale Sanctuary in Minnesota when my son was attending that college. Uh, actually, both these books, The Toxic War on, on Masculinity, uh, of course, all her books, actually. I mean, she's written several. Total Truth, Saving Leonardo. That was the first one, by the way, that we that got uh, connected with you. And then Love Thy Body is another one. You can find these on Amazon.com. And I exhort you very much to, to pick them up. You know, uh, Nancy, I wanted to ask, you know, who is this book 
uh, written for. You know, I guess I should have asked that earlier, but <laughs> and I, I, I do want to turn the page and talk about the good news. And that is about evangelical men, fathers, because really that that's who, who is this really written for? Yes, well, we've been talking so far mostly about the secular world and why it has a low view of masculinity. So, of course, right. I wanted to equip all Christians, all people um, with how to respond to that. But the final trigger, so to speak, where I said, I have got to write this book, was the good news. And that is, uh, I was reading sociological studies of Christian men, of evangelical Mm -hmm. men. And to my own surprise, I found out that evangelical men, well, first of all, let's say, let's admit, they're the ones who are targeted the most as being toxic. exactly right. It was not hard to find examples. I'll give you just one. So this was the co-founder of the Church Two movement, and she said Protestant male Protestant theo- headship theology. I think she said it. Headship theology feeds the rape culture that we mm. see permeating American Christianity today. And this came out of the Me Too movement. It was in com- companion to that, I assume. But right after the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, addressing sexual assault uh, yeah. in, in the culture generally. There was a church to movement. That, uh, not everyone's heard about that one because it, uh, it's mm-hmm. smaller. But yes, it was a movement against uh, sexual assault and so on in the church. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, she blamed she blamed the concept of, of uh, headship, which, of course, is taught in places like Ephesians. But um, so the, so the social scientists looked at these charges and said, where's your evidence? Where's your evidence? So they went out and did the studies. And surprisingly, they found that, in fact, evangelical Christian men test out as the most loving fathers, the most engaged husbands. They have the lowest level of divorce. And surprisingly, they have the lowest level of domestic violence of any group in America. So this was the good news. Uh, my 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 sort of go-to sociologist, the one who I quote the most often, is his, his name is Brad Wilcox, and he teaches sociology at the University of Virginia. And he he's so well known that he writes in places like the New York Times. Um, and so it's, let me give you this quote. I'll just read it to you. This was an article he wrote in the New York Times. He says it turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Uh, of course, they focus a lot on the wives because supposedly it's the wives who are unhappy with these right. domineering, tyrannical patriarchs. But in fact, the happiest of all wives in America, in all wives in America, are religious conservatives. Fully, seventy-three percent of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services regularly with their husbands have high-quality marriages. Now, even most Christians don't know this. I had to go digging in the academic literature to find it. And that's why I said, whoa, we need to get this out to the public and to the churches. First of all, to encourage Christian men that, in fact, the numbers show that they're doing very well. And then, of course, to the broader culture as well, to counter the negative media stereotypes that says Christian men are the, you know, are the worst in, Examples of toxic masculinity. Why do you think it is, other than the fact that they're liars, (laughs) generally? Why is it that Christian men are targeted then, if the truth of the matter is, is that they're generally the best fathers? 
Yeah. Well, I think it's because there's really two kinds of Christian men, and and this was an important finding too. One of the the, the first pushback I always get is, haven't we heard that Christian men divorce at the same rate as the rest of the culture? Right. So the researchers went back to the data, and they separated out Christian men who attend church regularly, defined as three times a month. And who are active, who are committed Christians. They separated them from nominal Christians, men who uh, may claim the label evangelical, or they might, on a survey like that, they might check the Baptist box, but they actually don't attend church, or rarely, if at all. Those men test out dramatically different. Their wives report the lowest rate of happiness. They're the least engaged fathers. They have the highest rate of divorce, higher than secular men, and they have, shockingly, they have the highest rate of domestic violence of any major group in America. And so clearly, if you don't distinguish these two groups, you're going to get misleading statistics. If you just say, let's look at evangelicals, you're going to have men who test out as higher than secular men and men that test out worse than secular men. So, of course, the, the statistics are going to be misleading. And it does say that we do have a job here. You know, on the one hand, uh, the church needs to encourage the men who are doing well and not make them feel demoralized. I'll give you an example. So I told my class, I'm writing a book on masculinity. And a male, a male student shot back, what masculinity? It's been beaten out of us. So even Christians... True. Christian men, you know, even feel that way. So we need to encourage yeah. Christian men. But then we also need to reach out to these nominal men who are, in a sense, you might say, destroying the reputation of Christian men because they are doing worse. But they're using the language of headship and submission and so on. But they're infusing it with secular meaning. You know, like the Darwinian example I gave you earlier. They're infusing it with meaning of tough, you know, savage, barbarian, uh, domineering, entitlement, and so on. They're infusing secular meaning into the terms. And so we need to be much more intentional about teaching what the Bible really says. So to answer your question, it's written to evangelical Christian men and fathers. They don't have to be evangelical, uh, for sure, uh, to reclaim masculinity uh, there's someone in our office, uh, a young married uh, mother, who's reading it as well. So what do you say? Obviously, it's not just written for men, right? I mean, obviously, we want women to understand this whole thing. What would you say? And I, I, have, I have one final question that I want you to a- answer. Uh, you, in the tagline or the subtitle here, you have how Christianity reconciles the sexes. Would you explain what you mean by that? And then I want to ask you, uh, what is in it for, say, Christian women married or unmarried? Yes, that's, that's right. That's why I chose that subtitle, because if you just look at the title, um, I, I actually had some of my students say, well, you know, if you just have that title, it'll seem like it's a book written just for men. So the mm-hmm. subtitle is, is your um, the message that, no, no, Christian women need this as well. Um, first of all, of course, all all Christians, including Christian women, need to understand the the secular 
world today and why it is so hostile to masculinity. It's affecting all of us. It affects mm-hmm. our husbands, our sons. I have two boys, so you know this yeah. is really <laughs> this is really important to me. me. I want to encourage my sons uh, right. and help them. I want them to be able to be critical thinkers. You know, how can they weed out secular definitions? You know, and really understand uh, a biblical definition of manhood. Um, and how do we stand against a culture that is targeting Christian men as, you know, number one, exhibit A of toxic masculinity? We need to be able to counter that secular narrative. And then because uh, nominal Christian men have the highest rate of domestic violence, higher than secular men, I did have to address that. Otherwise, it would look like I was shoving it under the carpet. So I do have two chapters on abuse in Christian homes and biblical answers to that. So that, too, will be of importance to everyone, uh, not only to men, although, you know, I I do address men, um, obviously, to women who are in marriages, relationships with nominal men, men who they they thought they married a Christian and he turned out not to be, um, and to churches. How do do churches deal with this? So it's very rich because it gives good news and it gives the bad news. And and how to deal with the bad news as well. So it really does address all of these audiences. And so, how does it reconcile the sexes? I know you kind of touched on it, but what 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 are you talking about there? Well, I'm looking when I say that I'm looking mostly at the good news, right? That that in fact, Christian men who actually live it out um, are, are doing very well. L- let me give you one more quote on that because. Um, Sometimes, you know, a particular quote can really crystallize it for you. And and this is, again, Brad Wilcox at the University of Virginia. He writes, uh, he turns to his secular colleagues, right, and he's who are academics. And he says to them, academics need to cast aside their prejudices about religious conservatives and evangelicals in particular. Conservative Protestant married men with children are consistently the most active and expressive fathers and the most emotionally engaged husbands. So the bottom line is that Christians do have a practical answer to reconciling the sexes, as I put it in my subtitle. And it's one that stood up to rigorous empirical testing. So we should be bold about bringing this into the public square as an evidence-based solution to the charge of of toxic masculinity. Well, friends, I, I highly recommend the book. Uh, we need to reclaim manhood. And I'm not just speaking to you because I'm a man, but I understand what men are up against in culture. And this book will help you do that. Whether you're a male or female, you're going to understand what it means to reconcile the sexes and that you can be tender and loving at the same time. And that's what evangelical Christian men are generally. Uh, Nancy, thank you for being on the program, friends. So you can pick this up. The book up at Amazon.com or all of uh, Nancy Piercy's books. Uh, This one I highly recommend as well, Love Thy Body. Uh, We use this here at Created Equal in our internship. Uh, Professor Piercy, thanks for being on the program. God bless you. Thank you. Good to see you again. Well, friends, I hope you enjoyed the interview with uh, Professor Nancy Piercy talking about what uh, toxic masculinity is and what biblical manhood is. 
And you might wonder why I would bring her on the program. What does that have to do with the abortion issue? Well, here's what it has to do with it. We often hear the abortion issue being couched as an issue of women's rights, that it's a women's issue only and the men should have no say, specifically pro-life men. Well, I'm here to say that men should have a say, and this book addresses why men need to reclaim biblical manhood. And so I recommend the book highly. You can pick it up at Amazon.com, and it does have real practical uh, application in our own lives. Whether you're a pro-life activist or not, uh, this book addresses what's going on in culture, and it's not good. We need to reverse the trend. And the place to start that is in our own homes, in our own lives, and in our churches, and from there out to culture. So go to Amazon.com to pick up Nancy Piercy's book, The Toxic War on Masculinity. We'll see you next time. God bless you. God bless America. And remember, America, to bless God. You've been listening to Mark Harrington, your radio activist. For more information on how to make a difference for the cause of life, liberty, and justice, go to createdequal.org. To follow Mark, go to markharringtonshow.com. Be sure to tune in next time for your marching orders in the culture war.